Okay, Matt. Um, here we are introducing episode six. More scat. Oh God. Not a good start. Not a good start. But I'm not going to edit it. I'm just going to say more scrapping, not go. more slapping. Although there might be some slapping as well. Uh, this episode is about clans and uh, a latter focus of the episode, Rob Roy specifically, who is crazy and we've prepared some fun content for him specifically. So uh, a lot of um, context you want to set for this episode, Max, it was an eventful one. Uh, yeah, it was. It was pretty demoralising. Probably part of the recording process was... You need to suffer for art though, don't you? Um, so suffered that much. Yeah, we almost died of pneumonia. But anyway, um, so back context, guys. Um, we had quite a geographical journey during the record of this episode. Thought you might, I might just keep you in the loop about it and uh, update you as to what we discussed, uh, when and where. Uh, we started in Balkidder Churchyard, which is a um, in Balkidder, which is to the northeast of Loch Lomond. Um, and um, in the ch- in the kind of famous churchyard there, which is the purported burial place of Rob Roy, but we'll get more into that later. Um, any other notes on Balkidder, Matt? So it's near that mirrored box we were talking about. It's in yeah. between. So there's Loch Voyle and Balkidder. There's a wee bit of land, and then there's um, Loch Erne on the other side of that. Loch Erne to the to the east of of, of that, I think. Um, so yeah, um, we'll post some pictures and cool pictures of around there. It's a good place to go to. Um, so we start there, um, walking up to uh, walking up a path to a waterfall that we couldn't find. That's the recurring theme of this podcast, I guess. Um, uh, in that point, we start talking about the concept of clans. Uh, Matt, we introduced that kind of concept. Yes. Um, we then decided to start recording again on our walk of shame back down because, well, we'll get more into that later. At that point, we talk about. Um, uh, Tartan's history and the significance of that and how its popularity grew with the actual kind of demise of the true clan systems of Scotland um, and then we started to talk about earldoms earls and people called earl um, this is our first apology here Matt at this point um, it says here um, do you want to talk about the my name is Earl? yeah so the actor Jason Lee I said one of them I thought they were cancelled but turns out he's just a Scientologist so I put brackets is that the same as being cancelled? Uh, we then re- reconvened later on at Matt's house after, um, but not before, um, we tried to go to another place far away, Gert- the, well, apparently existent Gartartan Castle, which we, the old emblem of the McFarlane clan, which we simply could not find. No, if it was up to us, it doesn't exist. Uh, apparently it's a nice place to visit. Anyway, um, so at that point we restarted our conversation about the earldom of Lennox, why it was significant in this talk about the clans in Loch Lomond. Um, and how the new Anglo-Saxon and Norman-influenced hereditary Scottish elite scuffled with crazy bastard remnants of Scottish Highland clans around the loch. And this is where we start talking about Rob Roy, who is easily one of the maddest bastards we've talked about. Yeah, um, it really made it easy to record that part of it. There's just so much to talk about. Yeah, I mean, this, there's a lot of good content there, so, so stay tuned for that. Um, I want to apologise for a bit of heavy breathing at the start. The, the hill was much bigger than we expected and quite frankly the conditions and elements were a struggle. Um, but that didn't last for long thankfully, although uh, Matt and I did, uh, I think the day got to us a bit. Um, uh, at one point during the podcast we had a bit of rough patch of form but then uh, I think the, the, the third act is uh, we really pick ourselves up with these crazy stories. Yeah, once we get into the warmth that kind of made a, a big difference to 
morale. That helped us out a bit. Um, so yeah, hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, we'll go as we go from Balkidder to, uh, to to back to near Loch Lomond, and um, yeah, tell some stories in between about the clans, um, about Tartan, about Rob Roy, and about uh, the area and its significance. So uh, yeah, hope you enjoy. Right, Matt, we're um, in the shadow of uh, the Old Kirk in Balkidder. Yes, we are. And uh, it's fucking freezing. Yes, we've chosen a really, really, really good day to do this. Yeah, I've also forgot my walking boots, so these lovely Doc Martens are getting... They won't be lovely afterwards. And they'll be mush, like my brain, <laughs> at the end of this. Um, yeah, this is a nice kind of facade of an old, old church. Um, does it say how old it is, maybe? Can we find out? Looking at the front of it. Oh, fuck, I almost decked it. Does uh, it say there? It just says, we old cuck. No, that does not tell you. Well, we will find out that for you, but it's definitely very old, because only the front of it is still standing. And... I was trees growing inside the building, so that kind yeah. of... Tells you uh, a giveaway. Yeah. Um, that's our expert view on it. There's uh, a really nice graveyard around here. It's apparently one of the places where they think Rob Roy McGregor, who's mentioned in this podcast, is buried. Um, we've seen in the sign that he might have been buried in Loch Lomond as yeah, well. Yeah, apparently on Inch Kylix, so there's a bit of debate there. Well, maybe we can do our own archaeological study, um, perhaps, when the weather's better. Um, it's a really nice churchyard. Um, there's lots of McGregor's and McFarlane's buried here as well. McFarlane's the... McFarlane. They're the traditional yeah. clan of this area, apparently, before the McGregor's moved in. Um, yeah, so still still McLaren's kicking about, by all accounts, get buried in this bur- graveyard. The area we're in is near um, the mirrored box yes. viewpoint, isn't it? We've been before. Yeah, I didn't know how it worked. It was just kind of, we turned up, took some photos and then got to fuck. Yeah, we're not exactly influencers, are we? So we probably didn't make use of the uh, that kind of imagery very well, but it's... Uh, also in January, it was uh, after a long day. Yeah. I just wanted my Starbursts and to go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as we all would all would in that circumstance. It's actually a really nice area as well. It's um, kind of sandwiched in between two locks in this big glen. Yeah. The locks are... I forget the names of them now. There the was t- the name over there. We're near Loch Earnhead. That's yeah. one of them. Then, yeah. Uh, There's another one that's kind of facing it as well. Um, this is a nice graveyard grave. It's got a gate around it. David Carnegie. There's a couple of Carnegies here. Uh, who are, by all accounts, quite a reputable name. Um, there's a big cross, moss grown in the ground, um, stamped in the ground. It's quite cool. Maybe we'll take some pictures. Um, yeah, it's um, a pretty cool place. And there's a new church here, which you um, can walk up to just now. Um, see if see what's happening. Just kind of walking over dead people. 
Church of Scotland. Oops, puddle. Ooh. Yeah, a lot of Americans patronising this. Getting money to support it. Including Mary Lola McGregor, Wiltshire, from Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, I think we'll talk about this more in the episode. But clans these days are a kind of weird thing, aren't they? Bit yeah. Culty. Um, yeah, and then you've got folks spanning back 200 years, like, oh, that's my family. Would you go to a Summers family gathering? Um, well, I cannot. No. <laughs> no. I wouldn't go to a Palombo family gathering either. I know that there's others around the world, but I'm just not interested in meeting them. I was um, going to say something there, but I'm <laughs> probably incriminating myself, so better not. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's nice. The new church is really nice as well. Um, very picturesque. Says visitors are very welcome. Please enter by turning the door ring handle and push. It's usually open during the day. I don't know if I'm going to do that right now. Um, no, I'm not I can't right. be bothered talking to our reverend. Um, <laughs> that's not going to happen right now. I'm not in the mood. But um, by all accounts, maybe you want to do that. I think we'll. Um, We'll set off in our walk. We're going to walk up to um, a waterfall, hopefully. Get shit, mate. Right? <laughs> hopefully not. Hopefully Fall not. Break an ankle because um, it's going to be difficult for people to come out and get us. I think. Um, I think my mum's going to struggle to come pick us up from this pod. <laughs> that podcast injury. It's a reference to episode one, two, two. two. There we go. Oh, there's a man caring for some trees. Right. Um, We'll record some more later. Um, I'll take some pictures, I think, of this nice place. This microphone buffer's looking a bit sad. <laughs> Soggy. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it works all right. Um, but we're yeah we're recording episode six of uh, the About Lock Loman podcast. Uh, I was going to say I'm John Luca, but I guess we could just do it then. Try anyway, so and you're Matt. But yes, that's correct. We've got that one right. Okay. No corrections and apologies required. For no, that. it's been as the Americans in front of us uh, somewhere in this path might say a hot minute since we last recorded. So hopefully we're not too rusty, considering that we were already really fucking rusty <laughs> again. <with. laughs> It is recording at least, which is a good start. Yeah, so, on the right track. <laughs> episode six, we are on location in Balkidder because we are talking about clans, people like Rob Roy McGregor. Why is uh, Balkidder relevant, Matt? Well, apparently he was, I think he lived here for a wee bit, and also was apparently, as we kind of discussed a wee bit earlier, apparently buried in the. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we could have just came here for no reason if it turns out that he was actually buried in a. Kylie and Mark Lomond, which is apparently another. Yeah. It's an adventure. Yeah, this is the old ancestral grounds of the McFarlands as well. So, some more clan relevance we'll be talking about. Well, we can start with this little uh, excerpt, um, which will describe why clans are relevant to Loch Lomond in the surrounding area. So, the Loch, um, this is from. Um, this is actually from 
the Vale of Leaven.org.uk, Matt. Shout out. Might this have been uh, written by your grandfather? Uh, most likely, yes. Yeah. Well, he describes the relevance of this quite well. The lock is the point at which the highlands meet the lowlands, and indeed the highland geographical fault runs across the lock just south of Lust through a string of islands to emerge at the foot of Conic Hill at Balmaha. Two cultures met on its shores and for many centuries clashed here in raids and feuds. It is no accident that it was the Lockside clans who fought out the last clan battle in Scotland. In Glenfruin in 1603, just a couple of miles as the crow flies from the loch, the battle was Highlander versus Lowlander. And more than the Jacobite risings of the 18th century was the last hurrah of the Highlander plundering the Lowlands at will. Impactful stuff. Try not to breathe too heavily. This hill is a lot steeper than I thought it was. I've already had one complaint about breathing too heavily, so <laughs> need to work on our cardio. There you go. Clear those airways. Okay, so the structure of this episode, as we reach a slightly more gradual incline in these snowy hills, um, the structure of this episode is we're going to kind of break down how the clan system worked, how it kind of um, developed into sort of modern history as well, and because it's quite interesting to figure out when it all kind of came to, well, came to how um, we know it today, which is a bit of a sort of uh, tokenistic and weird Water thing. Down eye. Load of pish. Yeah, well, we'll come to that. <laughs> we'll come to that in a bit. Um, but yeah, I'll start off by talking, I'll give a kind of quick history of the clan. So. As the wonderful Wikipedia describes, the clan is a kinship group that evokes a shared identity and descendants over a um, period of centuries. Before and during the early days of the Kingdom of Scotland, the clan system served as an effective governing structure for local communities that lived very differently to how we do today. You know, even after Scotland as a kingdom became more influenced by and we'll go into this in more detail in a bit, Anglo-Norman sort of feudal styles of rule, which kind of established sort of things like, you know, patriarchal, hereditary ownership of land, a patriarchal rule, and passed down from one person, and then, you know, the king, the sovereign, and split between many other people below them. That wasn't really in sort of sync with the clan system, but it did kind of exist alongside it for a while, and we'll talk about that and how it influenced areas in the Highlands and the Lowlands, including Loch Lomond. So, I think these days, like, as we kind of touched on with the sort of weirdness of the clan system these days, there's this kind of simplistic notion to conflate the idea of clans with bloodlines. But, you know, why is that not so simple, Matt? Um, mainly because it wasn't down to bloodlines, it was more kind of where the area you grew up in, you all kind of fell under the same umbrella there. So even if you're not related to someone, You'd still take their name as your second name to show that you're associated. So it was a way, again, of kind of like local governance, protection, you know, again, being part of a clan, being part of a community. And I think you could kind of take a... There's an interesting sort of like kind of, you know, Marxist communist sort of take on this kind of structure as well, like, or kind of, not even that, kind of socialistic take on this yeah. kind of structure, kind of versus that sort of, you know, very top-down sort of hereditary feudal system. But um, yeah, as, as you said, Matt, it's more about locality and local resources, I think, as well. So the heir to the chief was known as the... Oh God, here we go again. 
I'm going to say this really quickly, the Tannister. <laughs> we really need to take some Gaelic pronunciation yeah, lessons. Yeah, if there's anyone out there that can educate Matt and I on some of these Gaelic words, that would be quite useful. Um, this is spelled T-A-I-N-I-S-T-E-A-R. Tannister, I'm calling it. And uh, was usually the direct male heir. However, in some cases, the direct heir was set aside for a more politically accomplished uh, and belligerent relative, which is quite interesting. So maybe more of a sort of meritocracy at times but you know there's also an, an easy thing to do is to look through this kind of period of rose tinted glasses but here you go so you know although even in the medieval period you know these clan chiefs would have had their power restricted by uh, the kings of you know, Scotland or even the kings of the early kingdoms that we t- spoke about in our previous episodes yeah, Matt. I think when you start getting things like dukes introduced as well they start getting a bit more power and uh, influence yeah and, um, you know, attachment to locality and to local resources meant that there was often conflict between neighbouring clans, and that's a big theme about this episode as well. But as the Scottish clan encyclopedia detailed, feuding on the western seaboard in the 1590s was conducted with such intensity that the clan MacLeod and the clan MacDonald on the Isle of Skye were reputedly reduced to eating dogs and cats during the conflict. Not for me. Not for you. You? Nah, I don't think so. Nah. I mean, uh, probably have an allergic reaction to it. Just. I'm a big proponent of like, if you cook anything with enough sort of garlic, you know, soy sauce and ginger, it's going to taste good. But I just don't think they would have had that available to them at that N- time, Matt. Nah, I reckon you'd maybe get like some oats and then some wild garlic, maybe. Possibly, yeah. Um, but aye, I don't think it'd have been too mm. flavourful. Nah, hard to hard to stuff like that. So, um, clans such as the McFarlands and the McGregors also offered things like protection to lowland rulers and what was often a method of blackmail. Another very prominent theme in this episode, I yeah, think. Yeah, it happens quite regularly. And it was totally acceptable as well. Yeah. I've got a wee overview here on tartan as well. So, obviously, we associate, you know, the shortbread tin image of Scotland, the tartan and clans and stuff. Um, before I go into that, we're coming to a crossroads. There's three different directions. three different directions we can go here. In the cold rain and the snow. And we mm. don't have a great um, that record of going the right successful direction. navigation, I. Well, there's a really nice looking bridge there. Fuck it. Should we go there or? That maybe... doesn't look like anyone's been there, so. That looks like a forestry path or something like that. Uh, I mean, I'm gonna consult my phone, but as will be the case with many intervals in this podcast, I'm gonna have to put the microphone down for a second to warm my northward buzz because they're absolutely freezing. Nice to make that a smoothly recorded experience, but it was always going to be quite difficult. Yeah, I don't. My expectations were pretty low, so <laughs> we're on our way back down after getting halfway up the path. Um, basically, because we stepped in a river. Yeah, it looked um, fairly benign, and then put my foot in one bit of it. It's like, oh, that's quite wet, and then as I turned round, then submerged my whole foot. So I've got one very, very wet ankle at the minute basically realised that the snow-covered path, you just couldn't see anything underneath it. So in the absence of a desire to disappear into a flow of icy water, we decided to make our way back down and instead find a shorter loop around the woods where we can maybe get a view of the or the glen. Um, but I did think I left off trying to talk about tartan before a truck almost ran us over as well. Let's see if my thumb works just enough to 
turn my turn my notes on. Um, so tartan, obviously tartan is quite synonymous with the imagery of clans these days. But tartan was definitely a traditional garb. Um, I mean, it was traditional enough for um, the the very um, Brit-centric dress act of 1746 to ban the wearing of them. And um, you know, I think we can kind of place that in a sort of you know, colonial sort of uh, British policies at the time, which obviously we're working abroad, but we're also working at home as well, I think, to kind of stamp the authority of, really, it was the English state, I think. But yes. um, So, originally, there appears to be, have been no association uh, of tartans with specific clans. So, um, you know, all of your sort of, your hunter tartans, your black tartans, which was my, my gran, and uh, all these other clan tartans, they were really, they were created sort of probably quite long after the formation of the clan itself as mm. a sort of political unit anyway. Instead, Highland tartans were produced to various designs by local weavers and any identification was probably distinguishable regionally, but, you know, it might have been town to town, it might have been region to region as well. Um, and anyone can create a tartan for themselves or for their family. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of there being a kind of sanctity around what tartan a clan has, that was really only kind of um, created with the advent of shortbread tin Victorian Scottish nationality. And then we're getting passed by a van. There you go. That's us back in action. Um, God, man, the fumes coming out of that van do not sound healthy, eh? That's um, running renewable energy. So that kind of brings us nicely on to how the clan sort of thing was bastardised. So, you know, by the time of like Sir Walter Scott and Queen Victoria, who were kind of two big proponents of the sort of uh, this shortbread tin Scottish national identity, um, clan and sort of general Highland culture by that point had been kind of effectively eradicated by a systematic, you know, cultural genocide of the British state, uh, which I'm going to call it's it. not like them. Uh, no, it's very unusual for the British state to do something like that. But there you go. Um, so this included, you know, obviously within it, the Highland Clearances, which many of you will probably know about, uh, a little bit about at least. And I think, again, it's similar to the way that Gaelicism in Ireland and ancient Irish culture was sort of eradicated um, with great help from the, the penal laws and sort of follow-up legislation in the from the 17th century onwards, right up until the Irish successfully fought for independence from the British state. So you can kind of relate it to that a lot, I think, as well. A similar process. And if I can get my thumb to work to switch my other page. There we go. I think <laughs> I've put here, here, Matt, that the, the face of clan culture today is epitomised by that weird episode of Ramsay, Gino and Fred. I don't know if any of you have watched uh, that, that show where they go. It's actually quite good. Uh, but they, they do go in one episode... Uh, in Ramsay's Scottish episode, because Gordon Ramsay's Scottish, yeah. um, despite the fact that he... Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, they go to a Ramsay clan gathering, which is... Um, that doesn't sound real. I mean, before it, I remember thinking, this is going to be full of a certain kind of people, and it was full of that certain kind of people. You are not disappointed. No, there was a weird kind of posh English guy who was the clan chief, and he was toasting whiskey. 
really, as I've written here, in among Get Out vibes. So if any of you have seen uh, Jordan Peele's phenomenal Oscar-winning film Get Out, uh, you'll know what I mean. It was really quite strange. Um, and also Gordon mispronounced uh, Breaking as Brecken. Uh, which, in fairness, I'm taking the piss out of him here, but we've probably done worse than this, this podcast. Yeah, so. but I mean, this isn't getting broadcast on, what was it, Channel True. 4? True. Oh. And, I, I'm, and, and it's not an episode about how Scottish I am. So uh, <laughs> that's also another thing. Um... Is there anything that sort of epitomises sort of weird, shortbread tin Scottish national identity for you, Matt? I think the fact that all the clan chiefs are English is a bit bizarre. Yeah. Like, could it possibly be because of uh, the system of kind of uh, capitalist class and culture and all going to the same schools? Well, yeah, I think that's nail on the head there. Do you think it might be? It's kind of funny, I guess. It kind of makes you think about how our prime ministers as well all end up going to the same schools as well. But yeah. Anyway, that's just uh, maybe a coincidence, but um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> but it wasn't always like that because uh, uh, traditional, well, ancient Scottish society was it was really um, a Celtic culture. Um, well, for a long period of time, it was a Celtic culture, identifiably, and there was a shift from Celticism to feudalism, which kind of helped mark the end of the clan system. And this was the same, obviously, on Loch Lomond and the surrounding area where there was sort of that physical and cultural boundary line between this sort of um, encroaching sort of Anglo-Norman feudal system into the Celtic culture. So, yeah, I mean, the the, the lock itself was a red-hot meeting point in that sense. Um, But to give you an idea of what the lock in the surrounding area would have been like back in the day, uh, so sort of of pre-medieval, you know, you would have had sort of more populous communities in in pockets in rural areas, you know, I think that, that this passage of time also sort of marked my, a lot of migration from uh, these populous rural communities uh, away to, to, to other areas that became more densely populated and urban areas. But um, you would have had kind of stronger and more populous communities in these rural localities. You would have grazing animal farmers who would have also been sort of um, adding nomad, nomadic practice as well, going up the hills and stuff like that. In, in uh, this book, to be often quote, Loch Lomond side by John Mitchell. He uses the 1266 Treaty of Perth, which we um, yeah covered in was it medieval square goes yeah, yeah we covered in episode four yeah to talk about this sort of like shifting point um, from Celticism to feudalism. Um, so in that episode we talked about how Duncan the first graduated from being king of Strathclyde to being the first king of what was a sort of unified kingdom of Scotland after his grandfather Malcolm the second of Alba, kingdom of Alba, died in 1034. So um, Mitchell uses this time of the Treaty of Perth in 1266. Um, after that, which we also discussed in that episode, is a, is a time to kind of highlight in ways this, this shift happened. So yeah, I mean, this old sort of Celtic way of life before that, um, you know, people who are aware of sort of Highland culture, <laughs> you almost decked it there, Matt. Oh, no. <laughs> they would be um, aware of like crofting culture, especially in the Highlands, and obviously that being very different to the sort of arable farming uh, that's, that's popular now. I think... Obviously, back then, people would have also... These, these, these towns, although quite populous in rural areas, they would have been quite disconnected from each other. So, so you know, considering all these factors, you, you have this sort of neighbouring clan system um, where chiefs sort of uh, become successful based on the relationships with the people in, in the region itself and the local resources there. Um, and it sort of paints the picture, I guess, of a more sustainable way of life, but obviously not perfect in every way, I'd imagine, living in the quote-unquote dark ages. But there you go. Um, it did, you know... Politically speaking, um, speaks to an interesting time, um, and culturally speaking as well. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, this is different, obviously, from the sort of Norman influenced feudal system, which is based around sort of enforcing power and over large portions of yes. the realm, you know, um, and by hereditary right, basically, who your who your <laughs> who your family is and who your friends are. So that kind of brings us on to the, the earldom of Lennox. Why is that kind of influential, Matt? Because they, they were one of the kind of... They owned a lot of land within Loch Lomond and they uh, were based in there as well. So, I mean, I don't know the yeah, textbook definition of an earl, but, yeah, I think it's basically just like in a... You don't meet many earls these days, do you? Nah, I think they've all kind of been... Died out. Yeah, I mean, I, you still get dukes, though, don't you? Mm. So I don't know why earl's been, I guess... Not as high up, but anyway. Errol is a name as well, isn't it? You will find people called Errol. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That my name like is Errol. Kind of, my name is Errol. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. Is one of, did one of them get cancelled? I ah, think you did. I, I, can't, I don't oh, want one of the guys got cancelled. Yeah, I'm the show literally got cancelled. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I thought one of them might be a badge, and I might be talking. Uh, talking to be honest, you can, you can sort of just like shoot in the dark and find a badge in these days who's been cancelled in, in Hollywood or. And associated TV circles But yeah Shout out to all the Earls out there um, So the reason we're talking about the Earl of Lennox I think is In this part is because David I Who we talked about Being the first sort of king of Scotland to him In the 12th century um, He established the earldom of, of Lennox And This established basically The first sort of hereditary claim over land and Around Loch Lomond and, and, and kind of The families associated with that Are the sort of the Cannons, the Cahoons, the Grahams, who um, I think are perceived as clans as well. But yeah, they, was it you that said though that like none of them actually had a tartan? They just, as you said, like you can make a tartan up. So yeah, well, you're kind of adopting that. Again, I'm not an historian, but I think the the narratives, historical narratives, seem to suggest that these were sort of the the, the lowland sort of um, elite landowning elite, and this is how they are, they were established, not through sort of. Uh, ancient clan structures anyway like the McGregors and the McFarlands maybe further north but we'll come into that in a second so so you actually at this point even had sort of your Highland clans interacting with this sort of hereditary landowning elite uh, in Loch Lomond at the same time over the the, the, the boundary uh, fault, fault line as well I just skated well. skated for a wee while there um, yeah and I'll, and I'll take this moment to, to um, put my hands in my pockets for warmth Waft, uh, what a day! Hi. Um, as you can probably tell, Matt and I are not um, in the same place as we were before. We have, we have, quite frankly, waved the white flag. Ah, it's not been a great day for it. It's probably poor planning on our part. Again, it was a recurring theme with that. So what we tried that walk, Balkader, they get snowed off. We tried to find a lock uh, north of Balkader, um, the, the Cuck, and um, Matt fell in a river. <laughs> and um, yeah, we no, just not totally, <laughs> just like there was some snow, and it looked like it was just snow. Put my foot in one bit, and it was water. Yeah, so we decided to turn around at that point. In fairness, the path we'd walked along for a long, long time it had no prints in it whatsoever except from solitary hooves from a deer that had, or a sheep that had uh, kind of marched down it. Um, yeah, they certainly weren't human. They were not human hooves, I know that for a fact. Um, 
and then after it we decided we'd try and record at Gartartan Castle which is a McFarlane uh, totem and um, Clan McFarlane uh, ancient home and we could we also could not find that and we got rained on quite hard wasn't that a good mood after that? Oh, shit, Had to drive back soaking wet. Did get the, the feet heaters on, no, that was good. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll share a um, before and after image, the images that I've snapped, but um, we were absolutely freezing and soaking today. So um, we did explore a bit, uh, but we'll um, try and um, pick up where we left off uh, in, the, in the comfort of, of, of uh, Casa, Casa de Mat. Now, I think we um, left off talking about the earldom of Lennox. So, um, yes. Uh, well, yeah, so I think we'd then, had we moved on, talked a wee bit about the Buchanan's. Yeah, I think. We'd, yeah, we'd spoken, we that was a long time ago. But we'd, we'd spoken about um, the, some of the kind of wealthy landowning families that, that emerged from that earldom of Lennox, the Buchanans, the Coons and the Grahams, and how they were kind of bothered by their noisy northern clan neighbours and the McFarlands and the McGregors included. But the Lennox country itself, as it was defined, uh, it includes West Stirlingshire and most of Dumbarton. And there's some information here on the name. Um, and the name uh, Leaven, stemming from the word, um, well, the Gaelic word Leaven basically is what it says, but it's spelt very differently, meaning elm water. Um, so there you go. And I guess that's maybe a reason why there's a lot of Leavens in Scotland. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, so um, this was also the Locke's previous name? Yeah, so I think that was, um, I don't know exactly when, it was probably around the same time. Possibly later, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it used to be that, and then they changed it to uh, Better Loman because Ben Loman's a prominent feature on the loch. Yeah. Um, so the district became an earldom in the late 12th century, possibly developed as a safeguard against Norse forces, um, who were, you know, we kind of covered the Vikings and all that kind of stuff um, in a previous episode. But the third, the third Earl of Lennox gained confirmatory charter from Alexander II, King Alexander II of Scotland in 1238. For, Two years after the Treaty of Perth. I think that was 12. Oh, no, sorry. Ah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's, yeah. Has, has your brain turned to slush? No, it's, it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. The game's gone. Well, um, luckily, um, there's, there's lots more interesting things to cover rather than uh, spurious dates. So, um, basically, um, at that point, um, Alexander II, um, he... Tried to um, gain confirmation charter for all the earldom except Dumbarton Rock, with all fishing rights uh, for the leaving up to Murrockburn near Bellsmire. Yeah, there you go, the mire. Um, when the, when the eighth Earl of Lennox was was killed in fourteen twenty five, he left no male heirs, and we also covered that. Yeah, that was when they all get wiped out. There was a there was a bloody um, there was a lot of beheadings. If I remember yeah. in that. So the family managed to avoid forfeiture of the land and were allowed to divide the land up between the descendants of the two youngest da- daughters towards the end of the 15th century. Um, the Earls then became Dukes in the 16th century and established a Dukedom in regality in 1702. It was then passed over to the Montrose family who already had the whole of the Loch's eastern shore. And there's um, some more information here about the sixth Earl of Lennox. Um, don't know if you want to cover that, Matt. Yeah, so... Th- they granted the land to the southeast uh, of the loch to the Buchanan family on the grounds, 
bit mental this, but anyway, uh, on the grounds that any executions that took uh, any executions were to take place at the Edel's Gallows Gallows at Carter um, Carter, I don't know, not the Middle Eastern country, like yeah, just to as in like um, if you were to um, give a nickname to your cat, you might call it Carter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good explanation. Um, that's my so. Did he say, yeah, it's fine, you can have the lands, but I want all the executions to take place at mine? Pretty much, yeah. You'd think you wouldn't. <laughs> yes, you'd think you wouldn't want that. Kind yeah. of, but I don't know, it's probably like a sign of... Fucking Yeah, yeah, exactly. Madman. That's maybe like that these days. That's like me saying to me, you know, yeah, you can, you can use the back garden whenever you want, but I'm the one that has to barbecue or something like that. That's not a good example in Scotland, is it? But... Because no, we don't no, barbecue, no. but whatever. I don't know. Make your own imagery up. <laughs> Make a cut your own metaphors. Um, and then, Matt? Uh, so from the, the 16th century, the MacGregors then gained control of the eastern shore from their base at uh, Glengyle, uh, which is between the northwestern tip of the loch and Loch Catron. To the west, the McFarlands then had control, as they claimed to be descended from the second Earl of Lennox. And at the time... The second Earl of Lennox. Maldun. Dean of Levenax, which was also another name um, for the Lennox family, mm. received a charter for four quarters of Luss in the 16th century, which was possibly to do with the dairy farming. And then at the end of the 14th century, heiress of Luss married Robert Cohoon from Old Kilpatrick and united the two families. So since then, the lands have remained within the family and in the... Uh, 1395, Sir Robert's son was granted Camstraden, which is near or just outside Luss, which became an important source of slate in the 19th century. Okay, right. Um, and um, so that's a kind of overview of the, so the earldom and how how that worked out and how hereditary power kind of turned to the area. But um, the clans were uh, were active as well during these times and were getting up to lots of very interesting capers and whatnot. And so we'll start by talking about uh, the McFarlands. So the McFarlands, they occupied the rough lands between Aracher and the northern tip of the loch. Um, you know, so we can think of like the sort of um, the western shore of the loch, right? When we think about the McFarlands, I think. Um, and they made a living, basically, f- well, popularly from marauding raids on their neighbour's turf. And uh, some information here, just, you know, the good thing as well, as we've covered in a lot of other things, kind of the history about the loch, you can visit a lot of relevant sites yourself and there's always new history kind of being discovered and... Uh, Clan McFarlane Worldwide, which is no doubt, I'd imagine, heavily sponsored by some interesting uh, American um, benefactors, um, funded excavations that revealed scores of sites, including one on Tarbet Isle, um, um, and they've done that since 2014. The Tarbet Isle site, um, so just a wee islet off of Tarbet, basically on the west side of the loch, very popular stop-off point uh, on a really scenic but quite frightening route. Um, uh, drive um, at times um, that islet uh, was thought to be a stronghold for checking activity uh, activity up and down the west and northern parts of the loch so it's quite an important strategic site um, and you know um, so the clan is especially associated with the landscapes you know beyond Luss in the west and Loch Lomond into the northwest around Glensloy um, and you know Glensloy is um, uh, we can kind of 
associate that with Loxloy as yeah. well, which um, which is uh, kind of ab- well, above and <laughs> upland from from Inveruglas, um, which is the hydroelectric scheme site. Um, and by there, there's also the the pyramidal viewpoint. Yeah, that thing. That thing. Um, so in med- medieval Scotland, Inveruglas was the headquarters of the chiefs of the clan, where their um, the ruined stronghold can still be seen today um, on the uh, off um, in a little bay. Um, so in the clan's heyday, um, the little lock behind Ben Vorlick, um, Locksloy, um, above Inveruglas, it was also their war cry. Also marked their war cry, Locksloy. Um, and interestingly, about the hydroelectric scheme, I've got a note here that it, it even employed Italian prisoners of war in its construction phase, which I am... Um, Very kind of them. Yeah, well, I didn't um, know that, but my own grandfather was an Italian prisoner of war, but he got a cushte, um, um we see, um, in the Isle of Wight, I believe, um, and he just played card games with British soldiers for a long time, I think, whilst his and many other people's businesses were stoned and bricked back home. <laughs> there you go, that's... Winston Churchill and his rhetoric does, uh, but there you go. Um, so there's an interesting fact for you. Um, <laughs> would you like to describe this um, fun little anecdote about the moon, Matt? Yes, so the the moon was once known as McFarlane's Lantern around Loch Lomond side, mainly because of the clan's cattle-lifting habit. But the McFarlane chiefs were more than just uh, cattle thieves. One chief was knighted by King James IV, Fell, uh, he fell at the Scottish defeat of Flodden in 1513. That's a hard sentence, that, isn't it? God almighty. Fell at the Scottish <laughs> defeat of Flodden. <laughs> so he fell on the sea floor. Um, so, and uh, another one of their clan chiefs fought against the forces of Mary, Queen of Scots, at the Battle of Langside, and through the grandson, in turn, fought it for Charles I, mm-hmm. King Charles. Uh, and because he'd taken the king's side, he had his castle at Inveruglas destroyed by Oliver Cromwell's men. Mm. And uh, ultimately, much of the clan's lands were owned by the Cahoons. Yeah, so um, we talk a little bit about the destruction of that castle um, at Inveruglas uh, in um, our previous episode covering um, what? Uh, well, basically the lock itself, the, the, yeah, water, the islands and the, the water, islands, right? It, yeah. um, because um, some very interesting stories have been told about those islands along that the McFarlands had um, customarily um, had charge of, you know, ruined castles and hermits staying in them and stuff like that in the kind of post um, interwar and post war period. If you want to hear more about that, you can listen back to that episode. Um, so, yeah. In terms going back to the kind of like um, you know, the cattle stealing, you know, our, our sort of present day outlook on this kind of behaviour is that it would be kind of totally unacceptable to be stealing uh, cattle, you know, valuable cattle from from uh, neighbours. But the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries in Scotland, the ritual of cattle stealing was pretty commonplace. Yeah, it was kind of just viewed as like a yeah, one of these things that happened. It was pretty. Yeah, everyone was relaxed about it. There was no, yeah. not too much beheadings. I don't think. It's like a flaming cosa nostra or something. Like that. It's like, yeah, you know, somebody's house will get burned down every once in a while. That's just what happens. <laughs> um, the McFarlands were were kind of unfortunate that their skill emphasised their notoriety and led to the inevitable attention of the authorities. So despite this, uh, their pride in their skill is is quite uh, was shown. Um, um, in their name um, of their clan, which um, is, this is just real. Again, we need some Gaelic lessons. But um, their clan, Pipe Pibroch, 
Yeah, okay, we'll go with that. Okay, right, okay. Um, and it, basically, there's a this is an anthem which is uh, in Gaelic. Is I'm going to say it really quickly again. Let's see if I can. Um, Tegel nam There we go. Okay. Uh, which translates in formal English to Lifting the Cattle We Shall Go. And it was written, lovely song, written by their 12th chief, Andrew the Wizard. What do you reckon made him a wizard? Like. I don't know. I'm just interested that his name is. Like, he's historically known as Andrew the Wizard. Yeah. But he must have done something to get the name The Wizard, so I'm kind of curious. Yeah, you don't think it's just like he did like a card trick or something like that? Nah. Although, I don't know, he might have. People were easily entertained back in those days. Made a cow disappear. Um, the McFarlane's, um, uh, you know, as we kind of touched on already, they were not just kind of into stealing folks' cattle. Um, and they had kind of a reputation as well for, for sort of defending the, the Scottish crown in, in those times anyway. Um, and their imperial, their motto... And their imperial crown kind of kind of covers this. Their their motto is "This I'll defend." They had uh, strong participation at Bannockburn in thirteen fourteen, Flodden as covered already in fifteen thirteen, Pinky in fifteen forty seven, and most notably at Langside in fifteen sixty eight. Then Bothwell Bridge in sixteen seventy nine, when their ferocious Highland charges won the day. They also supported the great Marcus of Montrose in the um, in the campaigns in the sixteen forties and their defence of the crown as we said, led to their destruction of um, their, their island castles. Um, that one at Inverugles. Uh, oh, sorry, Island of O. Uh, yeah, maybe you need to kind of cover that later. I think there's a bit of confusion there about what, what ones have been destroyed, but yeah, there you go. So um, um, there's also, they're also kind of um, one of their sort of um, castles that, that was built by the clan was at Gartartan, um or in Gartmore we uh, tried to find that today Gartartan Castle yeah John has got you can also visit Gartartan Castle but <laughs> can you? You, you can't I think we did actually end up the thing, the thing after going the wrong direction again for a long long time we did realise where we could turn to get there I think um, but we were just too wet and cold at that point it was too, too late Gartartan Castle is supposed to be lovely. Uh, it's in the house. Of, it's in the estate of Gartartan Estate. You walk in, it's Gartmore Estate. Sorry, and uh, um, it's uh, it was built for Malcolm McFarlane, and it's an example of um, an unusual 16th-century Z-shaped castle. So there you go, according to ScotlandShop.com. Um, that information. Um, let's talk about the McGregors because yeah. they're also kind of. Yeah, a bit sort of um, infamous mental. as well, a bit mental. Um, I, I can I can talk about the early parts of the sort of uh, the relative of um, history. So the, the clan basically traces its origins to the ninth century when uh, Gregor purported to be uh, was purported to be the brother of, of Kenneth MacAlpin, legendary king of the Scots or Dalriada, and the Picts, and grandfather of Duncan the First of the Kingdom of Scotland, who we also talked about already. Most people think this link to Kinnod in the 9th century is, however, a load of shite. And that's partly because, well, it's probably an association that was made by a lot of people. A bit like, um, you know, I think we spoke about, what was the name of that um, kind of early ancient ruler we spoke about from the Dalriadan ruler who, who, again, many people try to like say they were associated with, but they said they, they might have not even existed. Oh, is that Fergus? Fergus. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, um, you know, I think you see these things kind of carry in tradition. 
However, there is, you know, many believe there is an ancient noble link of some sort, and that's given in the traditional motto, Royal is my race. Um, staunch. Uh, most modern historians, uh, I do agree that the first chief of clan, Clan Gregor, was Gregor of the Golden Bridles, which sounds very Game of Thronesy. His son was Ian Cam One Eye, who succeeded as the second chief sometime before 1390. Don't know why that's his name, but there you go. Um, it's probably a bit clearer than yeah. Andrew the Wizard, to be <laughs> fair. Um, Matt, would you like to take us through one of the kind of most famous battles of the clans? Yeah, so um, one of the most famous and kind of most notorious battles was the Battle of Glenfroon. Uh, well, yeah, took, sorry. It took place between the McGregors and the, yeah. the Cahoons. So this kind of started. There's a few different kind of versions of how it started, but I'll just. Uh, I'll, go through the battle and then we can move on to that. So McGregor's were based at Glengyle, uh, or main, their main base was at Glengyle, but they also, we, I think we maybe mentioned it before, I get the directions mixed up, the gear lost kind of just up from mention. They started their dispute with the Coons came about because the Coons were deemed to have had richer land for farming and yeah. cattle. Um, so... The start of the disputes were because of the richer land and um basically Patrick McGregor of Lagery, he was actually summoned in 1541 for cattle lifting, which kinda of maybe marked the kind of earliest kind of or earlier sort of recorded incidents of sort of theft and sort of dispute over land and stuff. Yeah, so then uh, in fifteen ninety one the McGregors made a pact with the Macaulays of Arden Cable, which is also near Helensborough, because uh, they were both believed to be descended from McAlpins. So the Cahoons were now exposed on two fronts. And then things got worse for the Cahoons when um this is more mental stuff. <laughs> Apparently <laughs> McFarlane's just their chief to Benacra Castle and killed him. <laughs> but uh, one diarist from the time Claims that John Coon was executed for killing his own brother. So flipping mental man. Um, so Alexander then took chieftainship and uh, managed to come to an agreement with McFarland before the McGregors really started getting or ramping up their kind of aggression. Um, so apparently on the 17th of December 1602, McGregors raided 45 houses in Glenfinless, which the Coons followed up with a larger attack. Or which they followed up with a larger attack in Glenfroon um, on the 7th of February, 1603. So, yeah, there's a few different takes on where the battle took place. One claimed that um, two McGregor men spent the night in Cahoon country and were refused shelter, but they were also refused to be taken over the water to be with their clansmen, even though they were offered money for both, I think. Um, so the two McGregors... the McGregors offered money for... So the McGregor offered money... Um, to be taken over and they said no yeah. so the McGregor's found a barn to camp in and killed a sheep or some sheep one sheep I don't know probably one sheep two people two people in one night we'll just have a sheep each <laughs> two people for one night don't know they might have been hungry <laughs> so they they killed the sheep and then again in the morning, the McGregors offered to pay for the, the slaughtered animal, but instead were ordered to be hanged by Alexander Coon. <laughs> absolute rat. What an absolute snake. Um, so then Alexander Coon had been given permission by James VI to carry arms and pursue McGregors. Therefore, McGregors made the first move. So the Glenfroon, where the battle took place, 
lies between Gearlock and runs kind of down towards Balog. Yeah. And um, the goons made their way to Ockengay Glen and Glenfroon with around 300 foot soldiers and 500 horsemen. Some McGregor's, horse. yeah, a lot of horses. McGregor's only had 400 foot soldiers but got to the Glen first and set up 300. Going too fast here. Um, so they got to the Glen first and set up strategically to catch the Cahoons with a pincer movement. Alistair McGregor, I think, who was the clan chief, mm-hmm. um, took his men to block off the head of the Glen and his brother John blocking off the bottom, so they squashed them in. Yeah. And the Cahoons were at the bottom of the Glen on poor foot conditions, which made the horses <laughs> useless. Like us today. Yeah, but exactly. I don't even think a horse would no, have. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the poor conditions um, made the the horses pretty much useless. The battle commenced, and uh, the Coons lost around 150 to 200 men, with apparently two students from Helensburg also being caught up in the accident. Like the way that's kind of phrased is like that two two students were just like in the pub. Like, oh, <laughs> well, that was like that day equivalent of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, apparently they get they get done in. So after this, James VI was meant to become king of England in the march and didn't want any Highland disturbances to ruin his coronation. So that's for context, like uh, the king of Scotland, James VI, I think he was to become the James I of of Eng- England, yeah. of England and the Britain. Because yeah. like, the Union of the Crowns had just happened as yeah. well at that point. Yeah. So he abolished McGregor name, which lasted 108 years. This meant that anyone with the name either had to chuck it or die. Um, and then, yeah, so in Edinburgh, Alistair McGregor and two of his chiefs were also hanged. Oh, hanging? Isn't trendy. Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of kind of mad... St- the sort of the, you know, the, the Andrew the Wizard guy, the one-eye guy, uh, <laughs> Ian Kerm one-eye of the McGregors, um, you know, and then the stories like, uh, basically, you know, oh, I, I know I, I ate one of your sheep, but I paid for it, you know, all this kind of stuff, and then them starting a big battle off of it, it's great. I was saying earlier on, it would make for like a great kind of like Soprano-style yeah. sort of period drama. <laughs> yeah, maybe I can get some, um, I'll write a script. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so we've got some information here about the, the Campbells as well, just quickly, um, uh, because they were um, kind of not innocent and amongst yeah, all of this. Yeah, they were very much kind of involved in yeah. heightening the tension between them. So they viewed themselves also like McGregor's as descending from royalty. Archibald Campbell. Uh, uh, the Earl of Argyll was tasked with keeping an eye on the McGregors. Uh, he paid a bond of twenty thousand pounds. Um, Come King's Lieutenant. Come King's Lieutenant. That's some amount of money back then. Back then. Was, yeah, I'm assuming it's the equivalent. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of money. Um, meaning that he was to keep the peace. But then in 1601, Alistair McGregor had agreed uh, a bond with him where any bad behaviour by the clan would, would result in land forfeiture. Yeah, so if the McGregors basically agreed with the Campbells that if the McGregors acted mm-hmm. poorly, they were to give up their land, or to give up, you know, parts of their land. Yeah. And then the, the, the Campbells basically played the McGregors against the Cahoons um, to benefit from this bond. Um, the Campbells were fined, but then acquitted due to insufficient evidence. Yeah, I don't know, like... 
is it easy to collect evidence on that kind of thing? <laughs> I guess it's all kind of hypothetical and yeah. conspiracy as opposed to... Aye. It seems like they wouldn't really care about stuff like that when they could just charge and charge into them from a hill and like come at them with horses and stuff like that, you know? like uh, The stakes were higher. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Let's talk about Rob Roy now. Yeah, we've got quite a lot to cover here. There's some yeah. pretty mental stories in this as well. <laughs> yeah, that's one guy <laughs> alone is just a real mad bastard, yeah. to be honest. Um, he lived from 1671 to 1734. So Rob Roy McGregor, very famous. We were at his purported burial site, one of his purported burial sites today, um, in Balkidder. So, but actually, due to the ban on the McGregor name, he'd actually lived most of his life under the name Campbell, which is his mother's maiden name, or yes. his mother's sort of clan name. He was the son of the chief of McGregor's of Glengyle and actually built up a business of cattle trading. Um, obviously, cattle was one of the highlands main exports at the time, and the cattle business included time-to-time stealing of neighbours' livestock. Um, so he was kind of in close to this area, um, which we've talked about a lot, in the Highland Boundary Fault Light, and this kind of split between the Highlands and the Lowlands and the McGregors would pop across the Lowlands and steal from you know, Saxon Lowlanders um, or Associated Peoples um, and this practice also included uh, sometimes stealing a wife from one of the clansmen or for one of the clansmen which was again not viewed as a crime but a form of flattery That was a different time, Johnny That's all I've got to say <laughs> feel like they could have really used a Me Too movement at that point, but anyway. Lowland farmers uh, were not quite as relaxed as their Highland counterparts, and a watch was then set up where chiefs would um, promise cattle would not be lifted in return for payment. Uh, it says in brackets here, extortion. Uh, again, Sopranos. Uh, and if cattle was stolen, it would be returned. Um, so Rob Roy was made very famous by Walter Scott. Um, so... Um, I think Walter Scott would have been in, in living memory. Um, uh, yes, so I think like other Walter Scott would have been yeah. alive when folk who would remember. Yeah, Rob Roy. Rob Roy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, he recalls a memory um, from a from a man who encountered Rob Roy, um, who was a boy, fifteen at the time of the encounter, and he he lived with his father on a on a lowland estate. Um, do you maybe want to kind of cover this, Matt? Yeah, so apparently one October morning, around 12 cattle were stolen from him. So the boy and his father sent for Rob Roy, who arrived with seven or eight men, apparently. So Rob Roy was told of the circumstances, and as he was an experienced cow stealer, he knew that they wouldn't have been able to get, or they wouldn't have got far in the time that lapsed. So um, yeah, it was recoverable. So Rob Roy and his men, plus the father and son, setting off, set off towards Ben Borlich, spending the night in a bothy and then marching off in the morning, tracking and spotting the castle. Cattle. We could have done with tracking and spotting a castle earlier <laughs> on. But... <laughs> um, Rob Roy sent the father and son into the glen, which was where the cattle were, and the pair were told not to disturb anyone, but if they were propositioned, they were to state that Rob Roy was on the other side of the glen with 20 of his men, which he was kind of lying about. But they didn't know that. So obviously the, the father and son were slightly concerned for their safety, but Rob Roy assured them 
by stating that he would never forgive the offenders as long as he lived. Which, pff, I don't know, maybe was very true at his word, but that probably wouldn't comfort me very much. Yeah. Anyway, uh, off they went into the Glen, and apparently a woman started shouting them at them in Gaelic. We wouldn't know what to do in that situation. We're not very good at Gaelic, no. Well, these two weren't either, because they were from the Lowlands. They spoke English, Scots. But Rob Roy had given them a message to relay to the woman had, or anyone who'd spoken to them in Gaelic. So in Broken Gaelic, they gave this message over. Once the women heard this, they were apparently left alone. Right. So once tra- cattle were retrieved, they headed home, spending the night in a moor, but they were exposed to a cold northeast wind. The old man was allowed to share, like they plaid, with yeah. one of the... The clansman, but the boy was instructed to keep warm, keep warm by walking around and looking after cattle. Different time. <laughs> if only there was some kind of yeah. child line at that point. <laughs> My dad's making me just walk around with the cattle instead of giving me a blanket for the night. Uh, yeah, the, as the night get night get colder, the boy decided to shelter in the or spend the night in the shelter of Rob Roy's second in command. He found a, a corner of the plaid that was unused and he crawled under it, but when he woke up in the morning, he found that he'd stolen the clansman's blanket and the clansman's neck and shoulders were covered in frost. <laughs> Expecting at least to get some kind of physical abuse <laughs> sent towards him. Uh, he was obviously kind of slightly nervous about this, yeah, but the clansman woke up and just made a comment about it being a cold night. Hard, bad guys. <laughs> Absolute nuts. <laughs> so yeah, um, I mean that's uh, early in his life. Rob Roy had, had fought for the Jacobites at Kelly Cranky, stealing cattle from uh, Lowland Toffs. Uh, but by the early 1700s, he was a legit cattle dealer. I'm legitimate. Hey, trying out. Yeah, he owned seven thousand acres in the northeast of Loch Lomond, buying land for himself and relatives. Though the business was success- success- uh, successful. He had to deal with the upper-class landowners a lot and they didn't trust him as he was a, as a Jacobite and freaking a, a bit more rough and tumble. Uh, in 1712, Rob Roy's head drover was sent north to buy cattle but ran away with the money without a trace. Again, another brilliant episode that would be. I've got to find this bunk. Um, the Duke of Montrose, uh, who became a Duke in 1707 due to support for the Union. I mean, it's amazing that nothing has changed in the past yeah. 325 Three hundred and fifteen years. I mean, Highlands of Scotland and uh, Jersey are basically in the nineties are basically identical. Um, and I think you know, I'm sure we uh, Christopher Multisanti would have would have been getting up to no good back then as well. Um, but yeah, so um, the Duke of Montrose, who became a Duke in 1707, due to support for the Union, um, it advanced Rob Roy a large percentage of the money, but he decided to foreclose the debt without giving any time to pay it back. He was pretty angry. Within weeks, Rob Roy was bankrupt in the Duke of Montrose's government ties. Um, had Rob Roy outlawed in 1713, um, the Duke of Montrose was sheriff and dispatched troops to Rob Roy's home to make it uninhabitable. He just, like, set it on fire, basically. Yeah, he torched, torched it. Um, yeah, again, very mafia. Uh, Rob Roy, fortunately, wasn't there. He'd retreated to his mother's cousin's estate, the Earl of Bredelban. Good man, Johnny. And a Jacobite. The Earl offered protection and a house in Glendocker uh, to uh, to rob. Um, the Duke of Montrose's men uh, didn't want to go near. Um, 
So his outlaw status meant that Rob Roy could no longer access land, rent, tenant services, cattle or work. So he decided to make a living off of uh, the Duke of Montrose. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of payback. Uh, this guy uh, really is not getting it easy from Rob Roy. Uh, he was raiding principal tenants for cattle, grain and rent money. He would hold the tenants up at gunpoint, giving them a receipt for their troubles. <laughs> Smaller tenants were left alone, though, and sometimes even assisted. There you go. Wasn't all a bad guy. So um, one story claims that um, a tenant was to be evicted and Rob Roy turned up early on the day of the eviction, gave the tenant the money to pay off the bailiff. Uh, then after the bailiff left, he held them up and <laughs> stole the money back. <laughs> this man is a story surprise. <laughs> yeah, so despite being an outlaw, um, he still took part in the 1715 uh, Jacobite Rising. Uh, and after this took place, uh, an amnesty um, well, an amnesty was offered um, for the surrender of arms, but Rob Roy didn't know who to hand himself in to and he wasn't going to do it to the Duke of Montrose. <laughs> The Earl of Breadleban was also old and dying, and uh, the government employed Swiss mercenaries um, who had uh, already burned down the home he was provided with. <laughs> Do you know anything about these Swiss mercenaries? <laughs> nah, read it in a book. That's all. Again, again, man. This is. Have you? Do you remember um, what's the famous Sopranos episode with the the pine the, the pine trees? Oh, the Czechoslovakian guy. Aye, oh, they, when they hired that, that 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 they hired that the, is it the Russian or Czech Czechian yeah. guy to fucking assassinate him. So similar. Uh, there you go. But um, so it ended up Rob Roy just surrendered himself to the Duke of Argyll, who's a, who's a Campbell, who was um, uh, slightly more anti-government than the other options. Uh, Duke of Argyll was now Rob Roy's protector and gave him a house in uh, Glenshira, north of Inverary. <laughs> Stays here, Rob Roy again started harassing the Duke of Montrose. Do you want to cover <laughs> Yeah, so apparently he started uh, harassing the Duke of Montrose <laughs> again. I don't know how many times he's done this already. Uh, but the Duke's retaliations, funnily enough, became heavier, heavier and heavier as time went on. But Rob Roy would also still manage to escape captivity. Um, which must have been really, frust- really frustrating. Uh, this fucking guy... <laughs> So Montrose eventually eased off, but other government forces kept up their efforts to capture him and eventually... Uh, Failed? Yeah, they, yeah, I was reading this wrong again. Fucking Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so the government forces kept up their efforts, but Rob Roy was too popular and attempts to capture him failed. Yeah. Um, so during the opening stages of the 1715 Jacobite Rising... The 29th of September, soon after uh, the Jacobite leader um, proclaimed James as king. He was meant to arrive from, from France in October. Um, MacGregor uh, was travelling down uh, the loch by boat and, and foot from the east. Um, the MacGregor, sorry, uh, started raids and, and stole any boats they came across along the way. <laughs> Making their way down to Bon Hill. Uh, their presence is already known and let me tell you Matt you don't want your presence to be known in Bunhill <laughs> no. you don't want to make yourself a target in Bunhill with gunfire and church bells ringing out from Dumbarton Rock uh, the McGregors returned uh, to Inchmurrin taking more boats <laughs> heading to Inversonade how many boats do you guys have man? <laughs> um, just take it just take that boat uh, where they uh, they stole uh, in Inversonade uh, the chicken trotted <laughs> cattle land and deer Christ. Starting to feel like this Chicken Montrose is basically like Ned Flanders or something like that. <laughs> um, so the idea of this was to prevent 
Hanoverian troops from gaining access to the lock. Smart. Um, provoked a reaction from the government who sent troops and ships up the leave into the lock, where they were eventually joined at last by Humphrey Cahoon. Bloody turncoat. I mean, a name like that, you're going to be supporting the authorities. You're going to be a rebel when you're called Humphrey, are you? Um, and inversely, the troops marched up the hill to bang their drums, hoping to draw out the MacGregors for battle, but they never came. Uh, the government forces did find rope, anchors, oars, and eventually some boats, but the MacGregors had escaped. And those forces travelled back down the lock, collecting any boats they could find. Don't imagine there were many left. Um, it's unclear if the Jacobites or the Hanoverians like won in the end, but by December, Rob was at it again. Narrowly escaping being captured by... He just can't the resist, resist, can he? Um, so, yeah. After another rise in 1719, Rob Roy retreated to his farm at the head of Balcadder, raiding and occasionally stealing cattle, plus taking part in watch activities. Um, he died in 1734 after a cut he picked up dueling became infected. He was 63. So, I mean, that's... <laughs> The story of him dying is also mental. Yeah, I, I still don't understand how he made it to 63. If I try to live that lifestyle, then I reckon I'd have probably got to that bloody boy's age who was walking around. I mean, um, looking back at the the, no, the notice board in Balcadder, which told the story of uh, his, his death, um, so... I'm pretty sure it says it here. I hear it, it says in 1734 Rob Roy unsuccessfully disputed land of his neighbour John McLaren of um, Invernente um, and he and he he lost a clan duel. So, but, but it was also been told. It's also been told that this young guy McLaren basically he'd heard about Rob Roy being a big man and was like, "Do you want a scrap?" And Rob Roy at 63 was like, aye, no bother, let's get our swords out. So they just had a, a duel and um, got a bad cut, bad nasty gash. Rob Roy, apparently he's fought well, um, but he ended up dying from that. Um, Can you read the bit at the end of that, please? <laughs> oh, right, yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, so I think um, this is about Rob Roy's, one of his sons, I think, because um, it says here... There are inscriptions at the site in the kirkyard at Balkidder to Rob Roy's wife and two youngest sons. However, it seems unlikely that Robert, alias uh, Robin Ogg, is buried here, um, having fled after shooting John McLaren in the back. <laughs> so is that, I think this is, means that his son shot John McLaren in yeah. the back. <laughs> And he was later hanged in Edinburgh for abduction and manslaughter. <laughs> was that the same thing? Yeah. Does he even go into any more detail? At least a footnote would be good. I'll need to find out more about that. I mean, that's just fucking crazy. Um, let's see. Where where were we? Um, so that <laughs> that is the end of the story of Rob Roy. I mean, it, it really is wild. Um, so... Those were the clans. Um, nowadays, the clans are not, as we kind of talked about, not really the same. Um, basically, like uh, it seems like a lot of the kind of formal clan gatherings is a maybe there's a kind of good element where I, I can we kind of touched on it as well, where sort of international, you know, people of Scottish heritage get together and raise money for like to you know preserve and maintain sort of 
historical sites and whatnot. Um, there's also kind of like a darker sort of edge to it as well. I think we think about Queen Victoria and sort of balmoralisation. If anyone studied kind of Scottish history, they'll know about these kind of terms. You know how they basically appropriated Scottish national yeah. identity in this sort of short bread tin image. Um, you think of the the porridge oats man and the <laughs> and um, you know these these ideas of a, a Highlander and a Glen, you know, and a secluded Glen. You know, I think really that's you can look at that in the context of like you know the Highlands being quite populous places at one point where people led lives in quite tight communities and they were removed um, violently. And uh, their you know culture was you know destroyed by um, landowning elite, who many of whom still own the land today, um, or have traded it for great sums of money um, to other pricks, <laughs> not only from Scotland but from different countries as well, or to companies and trusts who have offshore accounts. Um, but you can look at it in the context of that, and also um, there's some interesting commentary on how this sort of uh, Highland identity was used to recruit people for the military and for the British Empire as well during the colonial period. So basically sending young men, disenfranchised men, um, you know, using this as a sort of vehicle of patriotism and to their deaths, basically. So um, obviously these Highland regiments and stuff, they still exist today. Um, so that is one commentary as well, you know, obviously not to get to it, to the kind of military and stuff like that, but um, it's maybe not so black and white, but it's an interesting way in which, you know, the the image of Scotland is undoubtedly been in Highland image especially appropriated um by the sort of um the British elite. Um so yeah. That's a nice way to end the podcast. Uh yeah, it's better than John McLaren gets shot in the back <laughs> by Um I mean the good news is that um Matt and I will be writing our script for a Sopranos style uh series uh, about the clans. Um in which um, our favourite characters such as Andrew the Wizard and and, and <laughs> the Duke of Montrose will, will get up to no good um, chasing each other about uh, the hills. Um, so yeah, hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, we've got more more and more to, to cover on uh, the, the area and its history and um, well, we hope that you'll uh, tune in with us then. Apologies for the stop-start nature of recording today. We were well and truly defeated by the elements in Scotland today. First time that's happened. Yeah. We've done all right. I mean, it is December. We've kind of started recording at the beginning of yeah. summerish, so yeah. the weather was at least manageable. But yeah. we just get waiting for the rain to stop. It didn't. So or it would stop when we got in the car, and then yeah. <laughs> once we get back out, it would <laughs> start pushing down again. Um, and now we have to go watch a football game in the rain. But there you go. Um, so. All the best, everyone. Hope you enjoyed, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you later. Mm-hmm.